we are in him should be to us like a fresh glass of cold water. But it's not just the reminders of what we already know. It's also the new discoveries that we continue to make about him. God is so multifaceted. And the ramifications of what he has done with, with, through Jesus are so far-reaching that we will never cease to discover something new about him. Anybody that thinks that they've been a Christian long enough to where they know everything there is to know about what it means to be a Christian and everything they know about what Jesus has done and who God is are, are gravely mistaken. It is impossible to learn everything there is to learn about that. And so God has given us all of eternity to continue to discover the new and amazing things about him. Last week, we specifically looked at our new standing with God. And I told you that we were going to look at some other uh, new things that we have in him today. And the things that I talk about today, for some of you, will be things that you may already know but hopefully things that you needed to be reminded of again. For others, I believe that some of this is going to be a completely new discovery for you. And my prayer is that this will be things that you may have heard with your ears before, but today they finally catch hold in your heart where it becomes essentially a new discovery, a rediscovery for you, like hearing it again for the very first time. The new things for us that we're going to look at this morning are going to be found in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 3. So let's all stand together and receive what God is saying to us today. Galatians 4, 3, Paul's writing, and he says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Lord, the things contained in what we just read are... It's unbelievably amazing. And God, I pray that we would see that. Well, there may be things, God, that we have, have heard preached several times over. God, I pray that through the anointing of your spirit, it will be things that, that hit us in ways that they never have before. God, I pray that you will lead somebody to a new revelation, a new discovery about something that you have done for them. God, I pray that this will be a timely word in somebody's life. God, that they've been under attack from the lies of Satan and they needed this reminder of truth today to get them back on what you have for them. Jesus, we want nothing more than to you, for you to be glorified. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Everyone loves a good story. And the ones that we tend to be drawn to the most are the ones that involve a hero Someone who comes and saves the day or solves the problem. And all those great stories that we have come to love the most like Superman and Batman and other great Marvel comic heroes 
uh, William Wallace in Braveheart, and even the romantic stories where the hero comes to save the girl from heartache and loneliness and rejection, all of those great stories ultimately find their source in one story. They're all just imitations and shadows of the greatest story of all where Jesus comes to earth to save mankind from sin, alienation, and intimate destruction. It's a story that contains all the elements that we love in a story. It's got action. It's got adventure and drama and violence and romance. The story isn't just about Jesus the hero saving us from hell. He saves us from many other things as well that, that torment and threaten us. Last week I pointed out how salvation isn't just about him saving us from something, but saving us to something. So he saves us to many incredible and awesome things. In this text that we just read, Paul condenses the great story into just three verses. And in those three verses, he identifies the problem, the hero, and the solution to the problem. In verse 3, he says the problem is that we were held in bondage to the elementary principles of the world, which is just another way of saying we were controlled by that sin nature that I talked about last week. In verse 4, God sent forth his Son. The entrance of the hero. And then notice in this particular text how Paul says that Jesus solves the problem. He doesn't say here that he solved it by dying on a cross. Although that is true. He doesn't say he solved the problem by forgiving us all our sins. Although that is also true. How does he say that Jesus saved us from the bondage that we were held in? Last part of verse 5. That we might receive the adoption as sons. So here Paul is saying that God's solution to mankind's problem was adoption. And he expounds on it more in verse 6, saying, Because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. First point in your following along in your notes is simply that God saves us by adoption. Now, in order for that adoption to occur, Jesus had to take our sin and die on the cross. His death was a means to our ultimate adoption. How does adoption save mankind's greatest problem? It actually makes perfect sense if you really look at it. You see, we were created by a loving Father and wired to be able to live to our greatest potential only by being in relationship with Him. There is not a human being alive that can reach their fullest potential outside of a relationship with the Father. We just weren't created to operate any other way. Not only is he a loving father, but he is also holy, which means he is the apex of absolute perfection. But the problem with that, at least for us, is that because he is so holy, he cannot allow anything less than his holiness into his presence. 
His holiness does not allow him to be joined to or be in relationship with anything that doesn't match his perfection. To do so would taint and lessen and defile that holiness. And so naturally, because of the sin nature that we are born with, we come into this world as orphans cut off from that relationship with the Father. And that orphan condition affects every single aspect of our lives. Not just the way that we act, but in the way that we think, in the way that we relate to others, it affects everything. I recently came across this blog where they were asking people who had grown up as an orphan to share their experience and to describe what it was like living as an orphan. And these were people who grew up not just without their biological parents, but without a step-parent, an adoptive parent, anything. Many of them lived their entire uh, lives as children in orphanages. And you will hear what kind of effect being an orphan had on their lives. And I want you to listen to this. I'm going to read some of what they wrote. And I want you to listen to this by keeping this in mind, that if this is the result of being cut off from natural parents, then being cut off from the father that you were created to be in relationship with has these same exact effects, but on a much bigger and a much deeper scale. You're going to hear some of what these people said And some of it you're going to be able to relate to and go, well, yeah, I kind of do that too. But I've had both of my parents, so why why do I share that same kind? It's because of that orphan spirit that you lived with for so long before you were brought into relationship through Jesus. And when we are saved, those orphan mentalities and habits don't automatically stop all at once. I mean, we've been living this way for so long Some old habits are hard to break. And sometimes we'll believe a lie that we revert back to that that orphan mindset. And so listen to this. First was a lady named Julie Duvall who lived the first 17 of her lives as an orphan. And she said, being an orphan is not the way you want to live. When I was growing up, an orphan was second class. Some people thought orphans were no good. It was lonely, painful, fearful. I worried about starvation, and people take advantage of orphans. A young man named Elliot said, being an orphan leaves one with a distrust of the safety of life. How does a child raise themselves? Mostly by shutting down the fearful, grieving, angry inner child and pretending to be an adult on the outside. It works for a while, but the child is still there, and its feelings can't be repressed. Another one said, we always get old and torn stuff to wear. No one ever donates fresh clothes and toys to orphan children. Till six years old, I never wore a dress my size, always too big. Worst part of the day is when the sun is gone. Not even a single day passed without hysterical late-night screaming. This girl lost both parents in a tragic accident before she was 16. And even losing them at that late stage in life... She said this, I became very emotional, quick-tempered, and defensive. I put up a wall and didn't want to get hurt by anyone or anything and avoided everything. 
I couldn't handle emotions, and I attributed every hurtful situation to not having my parents around. I contemplated suicide every day, but the thought of my sister always changed my mind. Over time, I felt insecure, and it's hard for me to trust. But once I trust someone or something, there's no turning back. And finally, a lady named Deborah said, It's lonely, scary, loveless. You then turn into an adult and spend your whole life working hard to feel some sort of self-worth. You do and do and do for almost anybody that gives you a moment of their time hoping to please them. And this goes for anybody, your children, your friends, your significant other. You bend over backwards to be accepted and loved unconditionally, but learn that unconditional love is in fact very rare. Even if you grew up with both parents, and they were good parents and loving, you still have this same orphan spirit, orphan mentality, orphan way of viewing the world and relationships with others when you are cut off from the father that you were created to be in relationship with. You're on the outside looking in, longing to be a part, to belong longing to be protected and provided and and cared for. And when those things don't come from the source that you were created to receive them from, you have no other choice but to look to yourself and rely on yourself for all of those things. An orphan spirit causes us to to have an inability of, of really maintaining healthy relationships. It produces a hatred of authority and a general distrust of leaders. There's a lack of direction in our lives that comes from having no foundation or secure identity. Like Adam and Eve hid behind the bush when they were ashamed of their sin, we continue to hide behind metaphorical bushes, afraid that anyone will see who we really are. And those bushes come in different forms. For some, it comes through success and achievement. We want people to look at our success and go, look here, look what I've done, but we're hiding behind that. Because that's not the real us. We're just overachieving, so the tension will be drawn to that. But we're hiding behind that. We hide behind and, and wave our bushes in front of everybody all the time. This orphan mentality causes us to draw near and then back away from intimacy because we have this sense that we're going to be rejected anyway. Orphans have a gnawing sense of failure and an overbearing awareness that they're not good enough. And that causes us to act in either one of two ways. We either develop this unexplainable drive to succeed, win, and prove ourselves, or we completely lose the motivation to try, knowing that it's not going to be good enough anyway. And so you either have abundant overachievers or lazy and depressed people that can't even find the motivation to put forth of an effort if it's never going to be good enough. With no lasting home, inheritance, or name, we fight over and spend our lives on meaningless trash and trinkets. No matter what we chase after, nothing ever satisfies completely, and so we find ourselves always moving from one new thing to another never able to find contentment in anything. This was mankind's greatest problem. Cut off from the Father, living as orphans, 
with only the ability to rely on ourselves, which is a hopeless thing to do. And so what is God's remedy for this? Adoption. The new thing in Christ that you have that never grows old is that you now have a new family. Every problem that springs from that orphan spirit finds its remedy solely in Jesus. For quite a while, I had a hard time relating to that term adoption in Scripture because to me it didn't seem like the greatest of terms that could be used there. I mean, I was like, I was thinking, yeah, I'm a child, but not really, is what adoption was in my mind. It was like, you know, if it's not as, as secure, it's not as meaningful as if I was a blood son. Because like my children, because they're my blood, they, they have my DNA and everything else about me is, is them. There is nothing that can happen that would ever make them not be my children. I will always be their father no matter what. I mean, I can go through a legal process of disowning them, but that's still doesn't make them not my children anymore. And so I would look at adoption as like, yeah, it's, it's, it's very uh, iffy there. I mean, if you mess up, you could easily not be adopted anymore. You could be disowned, whereas if you were blood, that could never happen. And so I had a hard time really seeing this for what it was. But then the Lord began placing people in my life who had either been adopted themselves into a family or had adopted a child into their family, which began to give me a greater understanding of what it really means to be adopted into God's family Of course, if you haven't experienced it yourself, most people, when they think of adoption, wonder that if they adopted someone, would they really be able to love that child with the same kind of love that they have for their own blood children? Of course, every adoptive parent that I know has have all emphatically said that that doesn't even become the slightest hint of an issue, that they love and view that child just with just as much strength and love and connection as any of their biological children. There's, there's no difference whatsoever to them. My youngest brother and his wife have three little boys of their own, and they felt the Lord leading them to adopt. So they started off by becoming foster parents. And they took in this little Hispanic girl who was less than a year old, who came from a horrific situation where she had no father to speak of and an extremely drug-addicted mother. She was neglected a lot and just was in a, a horrible environment for a little girl to be raised in. They started off as her foster parents, and then the more time they spent with her in their home, the more they just fell in love with her to the point where they wanted to make her a part of their own family. So they went through the adoption process. And then that day finally came, I think it was September, October, just this past October, the day finally came where she would officially become become theirs and we all showed up at the courthouse on that day. The courthouse was packed with people, mostly extended family, but also some of their closest friends who just wanted to stand with them and be there for that incredible, incredible 
event. And being able to witness that really showed me what spiritual adoption means. They asked my brother and his little family to come down to there to the front in front of the bench. And then Judge Duran, he was so neat in all this, he, he motioned, all, he said, why don't all y'all just come down here and, and be here down with them and experience this with them? So every one of us just packed there together like sardines in front of his bench. And their attorney stood there and she began asking them questions. And she said, Cody and Taylor, do you intend to make Chloe a part of your family where she is no different whatsoever than your biological children? He said, yes, of course we do. She said, do you promise to provide for her needs and protect her and love her the way that you would your own biological children? No less whatsoever. And they said, of course. And then she asked him a question that I just started crying because I heard it in, in reference to what it means to be adopted in Jesus. And she said, do you intend that the decision that you make today to never be reversed and you realize that she will be your daughter forever and ever? And they said, yes. And then Judge Durant gave the official declaration that she was now a part of their family And the whole courtroom cheered and celebrated, gathered around them and prayed. And it was just such a beautiful picture of salvation. And I just got this picture of on the day that you were saved, that the saints in heaven and the angels crowd around like that. And they're cheering. And they're going, yes, we've got a new member of the family here. And another way that that adoption is much like our spiritual adoption is the fact that it completely changed the course of this little girl's life dramatically. I mean, you can just imagine what what she must have been like and grown into in that horrendous environment that she was born into like that. I mean, it was unsafe. I mean, she had a, a low survival rate living in that kind of environment. But now that she'll be raised in a loving home with both parents who love the Lord and extended family who love her unconditionally, her future looks a whole lot brighter. I mean, the entire course of her life just did a complete 180. And we've already seen just the dramatic change in her between now and when she first entered their home. I mean, it's like she's a completely different person. There's also another reason that I believe God uses the term adoption. See, children who are adopted in this world know that there is something special about them that their biological siblings could never say. And that is the fact that they were especially chosen to be a part of that family. The other kids didn't have a choice, but they were chosen to be rescued, chosen to be loved unconditionally, chosen to have their life changed radically. And that's exactly what the Bible says about those who are in Christ. 
In John 15, 16, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Paul addresses the church in Colossians as those who have been chosen of God. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. In 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. In 1 Peter 2.9, we are a chosen race. And Revelation 17, 14 says that those who are with Jesus in the end are called the chosen and faithful. What an amazing and humbling thing to think that God looked down at your pitiful condition, orphaned, guilty, full of sin, and even though you didn't deserve it at all and you did absolutely nothing to earn it, he chose you and rescued you and made you his own forever. Forever. By his grace and mercy, he has brought you into an ever-loving, ever-living, everlasting family of God. And I'm telling you, you are part of something a lot more special than you realize. Not only that, but look at that last line in verse 7. It says, And if a son, then an heir through God. You are not just one of God's children. You are an heir. Last point in your notes is that you have a new inheritance. In a lot of the Old Testament stories, you see that in Jewish culture back then, being the firstborn son in a family was a big deal. Because he's the one that got the family inheritance. When I was growing up as the oldest in my family, I just loved reminding my brothers and sisters of this biblical mandate. But then when they got old enough to figure it out for themselves, they would then remind me, well, we're not Jewish. And so that would just kind (laughs) of eliminate that whole thing. But that's the way it was back then. And... uh, didn't really seem that fair, especially to the younger siblings. I mean, why shouldn't they get an equal share? I mean, they didn't have anything to do with this. They didn't choose to be second or third or fourth. They had no control over their birth order. And so in many cases, it caused a lot of resentment and jealousy. Of course, one of the most well-known accounts of this is the story of Jacob and Isaac. I mean, Jacob and Esau, where Jacob went and disguised himself to his, his dad and Pretended to be his older brother so that he could receive the blessing. But in a Jewish family, your order of birth didn't matter unless you were the firstborn son. Because then you got to receive all the good stuff that nobody else did. And I believe God intended for it to be this way in the Old Testament to illustrate what it means for us to be in Christ and how special this really is. I mean, you would think that being in the family of God, as big as it is, there wouldn't be enough, enough good to kind of go around equally to everyone or that you might get kind of overlooked in this big, big family if you're not first or you're not special in some way or you haven't done anything spectacular to really catch the father's attention. But think about this. Who is the firstborn in the family of God? Jesus. If you're ever not sure of a question being asked in church, just say Jesus, because it's probably going to be the right answer, especially in any sermon that I'm preaching. It's Jesus. And so he gets the inheritance of the firstborn. 
What do we get? Same thing. We get the inheritance of the firstborn. You say, well, how can that be? Well, remember the illustration last week where I took the jar and I got the figure and I put it in the jar and said, this is what it means to be in Christ. The figure being in the jar, I don't see it anymore. All I see is a jar. And that's how God, when we are in Christ, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. Well, to be in Christ means not only that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. It also means that we share in his inheritance. It means that everything that Jesus receives from the Father passes directly straight to us. Even though you may be just one of millions in this spiritual family, you are viewed by God with as much love, honor, and blessing as the firstborn son. Romans 8, 17 says, we are fellow heirs with Christ. And 1 John 4, 17, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it is so powerful, says, as he is, talking about Jesus, so also are we in this world. That's what it means to be in him. As he is, so also are we in this world. Paul knew what that meant and how special it was to be given such an undeserved gift. And he also knew that if we could realize what it means to have that kind of inheritance in Jesus, that it would radically change our lives forever. And that's why he said in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Saying, I'm praying that your eyes will be open so you can see what your inheritance is in Jesus. That you're not just an overlooked child. You're not a second-class citizen in the family. You have an inheritance the firstborn son's inheritance. I'm going to close with this. As I was studying and preparing this message all week, I was driving between here and my house one day, and I heard something on the radio where they were talking about this study that sociologists have been doing on this phenomenon of how people have such a strong connection and identification with their sports teams, especially in colleges. And they noticed that, it didn't take a study to know this, but the more successful a college team is, the stronger that connection comes with those who are part of that school. I mean, the greater sense of pride and and everything that comes with it. For instance, when Clemson won the national championship football game last week, they won that on Monday night. If you were to go on the Clemson campus Tuesday morning, you would be hard-pressed to find any student that wasn't wearing a Clemson shirt, hat, something that identified themselves with that school that was now the national champions. There was a sense of complete euphoria and pride that just permeated the whole campus. I mean, you could feel it when you were walking around there. And even though all those students had absolutely nothing to do with actually winning the national championship, they identified themselves as national champions. I mean, it was the football players who did all the work and fought the battle and won the victory. But everyone that was associated with Clemson they now get to claim that title. 
And based on their study of this, these sociologists came up with a new term. That this heightened sense of pride and identity and connection with a group, especially when it, it, it achieves something great, what happens immediately after that is a term that they came up with that they call berging. B-I-R-G, berging. And berg is an acronym that they developed that stands for basking in reflected glory. I mean, these are secular sociologists that came up with this term. They are basking in reflected glory. So Clemson won the national championship Monday night. Tuesday morning, the whole campus was berging, (laughs) according to these sociologists. And I thought, man, what a great term to describe how the, the Christian life is lived when you understand what kind of victory it is that Jesus won for you and who you are in him. What it means to belong to this incredible family and be adopted and brought into relationship with the Father. Folks, we belong to a family. And our adoption into that family happened because of the great victory that was won by the firstborn son. And even though he's the one that won it, we get to claim the victory and the identity and the inheritance that he won. Man, we should be even prouder of being a part of this group than Clemson is proud of being a tiger. That is what they are, right? Clemson Tigers? thought so. I know they're orange. You've been rescued by a hero. And brought into a family and invited to partner with dad in the family business. That's what he allows you to do with him. Be proud of who you are and bask in his reflected glory. Let's pray. Lord, it's amazing to think that you have won the greatest victory that could ever be won. And God, although we had nothing to do with that whatsoever, that you have allowed us to claim that victory as our own. That you allow us to identify ourselves with you, be called yours. Lord, what an amazing thing to think that although you cannot allow anything less than your own holiness and perfection to be in relationship with you, God, in order to have that with us, you just give us your holiness. It's a free gift of your grace, something that we can never produce or accomplish on our own. God, that you just give it to us when we don't deserve it at all. Lord, I pray that right now that these truths would hit somebody in a way that they needed to hear it this morning. God, that this rediscovery of a truth about what you have done and what it means to be in you may may change somebody's course this morning, God, that they were going down this certain path of following after their own desires because of the lie that they have believed about who they are. But Lord, this truth about who you have made them And who they are now, God, turns them around to go in the direction that you are leading. 
God, that we would no longer be so consumed with what others think about us or, or be consumed with trying to fit into any group because we know that we belong to your family and there's nothing that can compare to that. Lord, that we won't be so fearful of rejection from others because we've been accepted by the Father. Lord, I pray that you would show us what it means to be your son, to be your daughter, to be forever adopted into your family. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just allow that to happen in our minds and in our hearts right now. God, the work that you want to do in us and this church body would would happen here, God, as we just give you the praise that you deserve. Lord, would you do in a work in our hearts that only you can do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.